Well, let's um, turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and uh, we're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to go through verse 25, so I think it's up there on the screen for you. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to jump back into our uh, series that's focusing on discipleship, following Jesus. So here's uh, Matthew 4, 22 through, or excuse me, 12 through 25. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brother, other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've begun this new series on uh, being a disciple, uh, that is being a follower of Jesus, or maybe to put it a little differently, to be an apprentice of Jesus, right? A follower is maybe someone who just imitates the way of someone else, but an apprentice is someone who is learning a way of life uh, and, and sort of developing the character and the skill and the values of the master in order to go and to participate in the work that the master is doing. And that's what we're um, going to be especially focusing on over the next many weeks as we look at the Gospel of Matthew. And particularly, uh, these first two weeks are sort of setting us up to look at the Sermon on the Mount, kind of this very famous message that Jesus gives um, on this mountaintop in chapter 5, 6, and 7. Um, we're going to talk about what it means to be a disciple. And so I did this with you last week. I want to I want to do this again. I'm going to say a few things and have you repeat after me because these are the three components I want to keep coming back to. So discipleship with Jesus involves these three, these three things. First, being with Jesus. Secondly, developing the character of Jesus. And finally, joining Jesus in the works he is doing. Joining Jesus in the works he is doing. So that's what I want us to look at every week. Uh, the message is going to probably be aimed at one of those three things, if not 
more than that. And I mentioned last week that Matthew's gospel is probably one of the better places to look at this theme because Matthew himself sees himself as a disciple of Jesus and also as a scribe, someone who writes down the teachings of a master and studies them and learns them and then uh, writes it down, copies it, and then teaches and distributes that to, that to others so that they can join in the school of their master. And so that's what Matthew has done in his gospel. I mentioned also last week a tension that I've always felt between two of the things that Jesus says about being a disciple. One um, is where he talks about taking up our cross and following him. If you want to gain your life, you have to lose it, Jesus says. Um, this is a very rigorous idea of discipleship, a, a self-denying view of discipleship where we've got to lose our life. We've got to follow him so extremely that we might even die in order that we might have life in him. And yet Jesus also says, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. He says his yoke, his his way of, of life, the teaching that he gives, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And I've always wrestled with how do these things fit together? How is it that Jesus calls us to take up our cross, this self-denial to the point of death, and then come to me uh, if you're weary because my burden is light? They seem at odds with one another. And I said last week that Jesus, what he's doing with these two sentences, uh, these two little quips in the Matthew's gospel, is he's inviting us into his school into his way of being, and it brings rest and life to us. But as we learn Jesus's way and we begin changing and following after him, it will, it will result in us having to die to all sorts of things. It will mean denying the past ways that we have lived, and that will spark and provoke challenge and difficulty from other people and even from our own flesh, the, the ways that we've been used to living. And so both of these things are true. Jesus's way is light. It is uh, an easy burden, and yet it will provoke this dying that we have to go through. And I said the only way that we can do this, um, last week I said the only way we can do this is if we, we start how Jesus started. Uh, we looked at his temptation. Uh, we saw him begin his ministry, uh, but we saw that after his baptism, he went away and was alone with the Heavenly Father. The power that we need to live this life of discipleship starts with coming to Jesus and accepting him as the Savior of the world, as God's King, to bring in the reign of God, and as the one who actually dies for us. His life was laid down that we might have life. And so if we accept and embrace him and then spend time with him, we begin to have the power to live in this school that he has invited us into. Um, there are a, a number of distorted views of discipleship that I want us to keep taking aim at as we go through this series. And all of them are partly true, but they tend to reduce what it means to follow Jesus to just one or two of, of the, the dimensions of following him. So I talked about how some people look at discipleship as a sort of in or out. It's like a light switch. You either are a disciple or you're not. You know, did you, did you pray that prayer? Did you uh, believe certain things about Jesus? Are you in or have you not done that and, and you're out? And it's kind of a binary, either or. Um, that's one model. And there's a lot of truth in that. There is a sort of in and out. And yet that's, that's not a whole picture. There are some people who look at discipleship as intellectual. It's about learning the right ideas about Jesus and knowing theology and knowing your Bible and being able to point to the right verses. It's about growing in knowledge. There's a dimension of that, but that's only a, a small component. 
Then there's others who look at discipleship as a, a moral journey about becoming a more holy person. And that's also partly true, but um, that's missing other components. So today we're going to focus on another dimension that some people say all of discipleship is this. And I would say, well, it's part of it, but it's not all of it. But we're going to be focusing on joining Jesus in the works that he is doing in the world. That's a big component of being a disciple. I, I know a man who thinks of himself as a very devoted Christian. He's dedicated to studying uh, the Bible and theology. He's rigorous in his thought. Um, he's very concerned with personal piety and holiness. But he hops from church to church to church, all of them lacking, none of them serving, uh, uh, you know, He's not serving the people of that church. He's not engaged in evangelism, um, doesn't have any close friends, but, but very much rigorous in his thinking. And, uh, you know, when we think about someone like that, we have to ask ourselves, is that discipleship? Is that actually a model of what it means to be a follower of, of Jesus? And I, I think we're going to see today that, um, that it's not. We're going to follow Jesus. If we're going to do that, that means we have to join him in what he is doing. So I want to talk about the call to partnership. I want to talk about the rejection of partnership, and then finally the good news of partnership. So those are our three points as we uh, go along here. Um, so what I want us to see in that is that Jesus calls his disciples to participate with him in what he is doing, in his kingdom mission. And we're going to see that involves proclaiming and healing and delivering. That is what Jesus is doing in the world. He's proclaiming, he's healing, he's delivering, and he calls us to be participants in that work. We are to partner with Jesus. Now, I want to be clear right up front, as I use that word a lot, participant or partner, that we are not equal partners, okay? So don't get the wrong idea here. I'm not suggesting that God is sort of dependent on us pulling our weight, all right? We are not equal partners. It's, it's more like a, a parent inviting a child to help in the task that the parent is doing, and they're, they're contributing, they're helping, but a lot of what's happening is their development, right? It's like you don't necessarily need what they're bringing to the table all the time. You're letting them partner with you, um, and you delight in that, but it's for their own development, right? It's sort of like that with us and God. He doesn't need us, but he lets us partner with him. So first, the call to partnership. I want to go through this passage, and basically I'm just going to run through it and show um, how it speaks to this invitation to partner with God. And by looking at these kind of three different sections of our text today. Um, the first section is in verses 12 through 17. And this is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. We looked at it briefly last week. Um, he has gone into the wilderness after his baptism. And now he has come on the scene and he is proclaiming uh, the gospel. He's proclaiming the good news that God's reign has come. In, in him, that he's the king. He's the one that's going to rule for God in the world. And this is, um, to Israel, this is good news because Israel has been in exile, so to speak. They are in the land, but they are an exiled people, and they are longing for a day when God will bring them out of exile. There was a figure in Isaiah that would lead God's people, prepare the way as God takes the people out of Babylon and brings them back to the promised land. And John the Baptist was that figure, and Matthew tells us he's been arrested, and now this new um, moment begins where Jesus starts to take center stage and he's proclaiming that God's reign is here and Israel's exile is over and he is bringing light to a dark world. And there's this connection between Galilee, this northern region of, of Israel, and the light coming to the darkness. Galilee had been very much, um, 
uh, I guess, overtaken with Gentiles, with Romans. There was a Jewish population there still, but it had been very much connected to the Gentile nations. And Isaiah talks about how a light would come to the nations. And so Jesus, beginning his ministry in Galilee, Matthew kind of cues this up that this is a sign of God coming to bring salvation to the whole world. Not just Israel coming out of exile, but to the entire world. So that's how it begins. Repent. The kingdom of, God, of heaven is here. That's John's message. Now it's Jesus's message. But as he begins his ministry, we hear in verses 18 through 22 that as he's walking belong, uh, along the Sea of Galilee, he sees two brothers, and then later he sees two more, these two sets of brothers. And he summons them to follow him. This is the, the, the language of a king. Follow me. He's not asking. He's demanding. He's calling. He's saying, I'm the king. Come and follow me. And uh, I will make you fishers of men. These men are fishing. That's their livelihood. They're probably upper middle class. They're laborers with their hands. They do really hard, stinky work. Most likely, these guys already had been followers of John the Baptist. We hear about that in um, John's gospel. So Jesus had some acquaintance with them already. They weren't just out of the blue being called by some random person on the shore. They knew of Jesus, and he's telling them, now is the time. That, that you're to follow me, you're to drop everything, you're to make my mission your mission. And he uses their profession of fishing to talk about what they're going to do. I'm going to make you fisher of men. Now, in Jeremiah, God talks about his judgment coming to um, fish out Israel from among the nations and judging the nations uh, at, in this terms of, uh, in the language of fishing, right? But here Jesus sort of turns that on his head and he says that they are going to become fishers of men. They are going to snatch people out of God's judgment and bring them into Jesus's school, into Jesus's kingdom. They're going to participate with him in that. And so they drop everything. Their mission in life switches, and they dedicate themselves to following Jesus. And then in verses 23 through 25, we see Jesus getting back to the work of his ministry. And we see three things that he is doing I want to highlight. First, we see him being a herald, you know, that term, like a proclaimer, someone who's announcing something, right? Repent, the kingdom of God is at, is at hand, it's here now in me. He is proclaiming, he's heralding, and he does that in the synagogues as he teaches, but he's also going out in the streets and along the sea, and he's encountering people, and they're gathering to him, and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. But secondly, we see that he is healing people. And of course, healing in Jesus' day is a sign of the salvation of God, that their exile is over. This is mentioned also in Isaiah that um, he healing would happen, people's diseases would be cleansed, uh, that they would walk again, that the, the blind would have sight. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's coming on the scene, proclaiming the kingdom, but also healing people of every disease, it says. He's giving the lame uh, the ability to walk again. Those who are having seizures, they're uh, able to have a right mind. And then lastly, we're told that he's also delivering people. He's liberating them from demonic oppression. Now, demonic oppression is complicated, and uh, I won't go into this too much, but it, there's always a connection in the social situation of, of a people and demonic oppression, right? In the Bible, demons work through social systems. Um, they bring oppression. They bring slavery. And so this is not just people having demons, but belonging to a society where they are beat down and stuck and addicted. And so this work of setting people free from demonic forces is something that um, all of us can participate in, in to some degree as we work for the good of our neighbors and for the common good of others around us and for justice. So Harold 
healing and liberating. That's what Jesus is doing here. Later in Matthew 10, Jesus sends the disciples out on a lone mission, in, really in pairs, and he sends them to do these very same things, to proclaim the gospel, to heal people, and to set people free from demons. This is the work that Jesus is doing, and he is training his disciples to join him in that work, to be partners. Now, this is not new. This is not something unheard of uh, in the Bible story. This is actually exactly what God created us to do from the beginning, is to partner with him. Think back to the creation story where God created humanity to share um, in the reign of God over creation. He made Adam and Eve, and he told them to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over it. They were to multiply and to create a society for the glory of God. They were to cultivate God's world. They were to participate in, in his creative work, to imitate what he had just done in making them. They were to take what God made and to follow his pattern of forming and filling, and they were to produce shalom, harmony in the world, where people would experience life and joy and prosperity. And that's exactly what, even after sin came into the world, Abraham was supposed to do, and Israel was supposed to be as a light to the nations, living in God's world, work, working with God to produce shalom in the world. God is full of life, and he created to share that life with us and to, to make us people who join in the production of life and joy. Now, I said a second ago, God doesn't need us for this task, right? I mean, God could do this all on his own, right? He's, he's not weak. He's not in need of help. He does this to invite us to share in his joy, right? And this is exactly what you do with your kids, like I was saying in a moment ago. If you have children or, uh, or maybe you've, you've just been a mentor to someone and you're fully capable of doing the work you have, but you teach that person because you want to share the joy of that work with them and you want to share in doing that work together. That is how God has made us. He made us all to be partners with him, to participate in his work in the world. And so Jesus is bringing God's reign. He's announcing God's kingdom, and he's calling disciples to him so that they would share in his labor in the world. That is a big part of discipleship, joining Jesus in what he is doing. Now, what's the problem then? Let's talk about rejecting partnership with God. Why does Jesus have to restore what was lost? It's because we know, the Bible story tells us, that all of us have rejected partnership with God, right? That same Adam and Eve that he made to share in his joy and to share in his work, they embraced a new partner. They embraced a new story. They had a new mission that they adopted when that serpent whispered in their ear. And we see them turn away from God and to decide to go out on their own, and they begin to try to build their own kingdoms. And this is the pattern that continues throughout Scripture. In fact, Genesis chapter 4, just a couple chapters after creation, after the fall, we see Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, going out and making a great city. And what happens in this city? We, we hear of a descendant named Lamech who is boasting about his power and his violence, that he killed a man who insulted him. This is what the city of man does. When we go to build our own kingdoms, when we turn away from partnership with God, we try to make a great name for ourselves that only leads to oppression and violence and death. That's why Genesis 6 tells us the world was filled with wickedness and people were doing every wicked thing they could think of. There was no end to it. Even after the flood, this cleansing and this judgment, humanity grows 
And we see them making a Tower of Babel where they're trying to make a name for themselves. This is another fake kingdom of God. It's the city of man. Over and over and over again, we see people seeking their own kingdom building, not living in partnership with God. St. Augustine called this the earthly city. And he said it's always opposed to the heavenly city, the city of God. Now, when we look at the passage that we just read a second ago, we see why Jesus has to come restore our partnership. It's because the world is filled with disease, because the world is filled with affliction and seizures and paralysis and pain and demonic oppression. That is the result of humanity turning our own way, rejecting partnership with God. When, when we turn away from what God is doing in the world and we seek our own agenda, it only brings chaos, corruption, and ultimately death. And so Isaiah describes the landscape on which Jesus appears, and he, and he calls it a place of darkness. He even uses the language of the shadow of death. That's the landscape. That's how Jesus shows up, is he, he comes into a place of darkness. He comes into a world that is living in the shadow of death. That is what happens when we reject partnership with God. And when we do that, it only brings um, a sort of freedom that is corrosive. Now, some of you may have heard of uh, the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. He was uh, an existential philosopher um, in the 1900s. Very big influence on the world in which we live today. You may never have read him, but um, his ideas saturate the way that most people think about their lives every day. He argued that our existence comes before our being. Our existence, our action, what we do with our lives comes before what we are. He sort of flips on its head how people used to think about what we are. We are something by God's creation, and then that, that produces the sort of people that we are to become. Sartre flipped it on its head and says, we determine who we're going to become, and that decides the type of thing that we are, right? What we are follows from our choices. There's no inherent value in the world. There's no inherent meaning in the world. There's no order. There's no purpose. You decide what you are and who you are and what you're for by what you decide to do with your life. And he says, there is radical freedom. All of us are absolutely free. You have no constraints on your life. You have nothing you're supposed to be. You get to live free. Now, of course, that's a huge burden because that means... You have no idea what you're supposed to do. you got to come up with all of it, right? Now, this is what our society largely lives like. We talk about this at Trinity a good bit. This is the underlying thinking for the sovereignty of the self, the idea that I am the author of my own life. I decide for me, right? I have the right to pursue what I want in my life, to determine what my life is going to be about. I define me. I have a right to self-identify. It doesn't matter what body I have. It doesn't matter what family I come from what country I come from, the norms of society. I decide for myself who I am and how I'm going to live. And my role is to express that as an individual, to figure out what I want to be and then uh, to live that way and express that and to be authentic about who I am. Now, when a world and, and a society begins to embrace that sort of understanding of who we are, um, it, it, it gets ugly very fast. When we move from partnership with God we inherently move toward consumption and comfort. Uh, many of you have seen the movie uh, WALL-E. Have you seen that movie? 
it's, it's kind of old now, but it's from Pixar. Uh, I, I watched it in the last couple of years, and it's, I, I think it hits different now than it used to in a good way. Like, it's a powerful movie. So if you're not familiar with this, it's about a time when the earth has basically become a huge garbage dump trash heap. And there's this robot Wally that lives on it that does the task of cleaning it up every day because all of humanity has been taken off of the earth to live in a spaceship by, uh, that's owned by this huge mega corporation called By and Large. And all of humanity lives on the spaceship um, just kind of zooming around space, sucking up resources wherever it can find them. And on this spaceship are people who are um, basically getting, they're moving around the spaceship on little mini hovercrafts. And they have little screens in front of them and they can order any food they want and watch any show they want. And they become very large. And so they're just being transported everywhere through the spaceship. And they don't even talk to one another because they're just so focused on getting entertained and consuming, right? And, and that's the world. And I just think that looks more and more like the way we're living today. Um, and because that's what happens when we're just given radical freedom to be, make your life whatever you want, consume all that you can, decide what your, you know, what your life's gonna be about. And so we end up just, you know, we get to tailor the screen to whatever we wanna see and consume all the time. And one of the interesting insights uh, about this, this uh, movie is that nobody is talking to each other on this spaceship. Uh, in fact, it's only when the system goes down that the people begin to notice there are other people and they have to interact with each other for the first time and it's bizarre. It's like they don't even know how to do it because they've been so locked into their own screens for so long, they don't know how to talk to people. Friends, that is what radical freedom brings. Isolation from relationships with other people dehumanization to our, our very bodies, just constant consumption of, of garbage and destruction of God's world. In a world where everyone is free to seek their own purpose and desire and consume whatever they want, we are dehumanized and we are cut off from real relationships and this is, is not real freedom. None of those people had the freedom to get up and walk around more than a few steps. That's not freedom, that's bondage. Nobody had a real relationship with anyone around them. They didn't know anyone because they were so locked into consuming all the time. That's not freedom, that's bondage. We may reject this idea of the sovereign self. I mean, if you've been around Trinity, you know, I hope you sort of reject that outright. That's not good. We, we reject that, right? We reject expressive individualism in principle. But the reality is that we are still shaped by it. No matter how much we might recognize that as a problem. We may deny that our lives have you know, no meaning. We say, of course we have meaning. Of course we have purpose. We have inherent value, right? But when Jesus calls us to follow him and join him in what he is doing, there are times when that is gonna rub against the way that we wanna live. And that, is the, that point right there is what tells us whether or not we really believe following Jesus means life or if we've bought into this philosophy of the sovereign self. The reality is Christianity often becomes for us devoid of any real partnership with God. We, we function, we, we live a generally good life, we learn some things, but we are not actively following Jesus into the places that he is calling us to partner in what he is doing. And worse, sometimes we take Jesus and we make him a partner with our agenda. We baptize him into our own version of the kingdom, and we get him to support what we want to do in the world. So what does rejecting partnership with God look like? How can you tell 
that it's going on. Well, if you are partnering with Jesus, that means that his goals become your goals, right? His kingdom purposes become your purposes, right? Your agenda gets laid down. And so you have to ask yourself, does Jesus's call ever involve dying to your lifestyle, to your goals, to your comfort? If not, then you are probably using Jesus for your project, not surrendering to his. It also involves his ways. You might say, yes, I'm after God's kingdom, but the way you go about it may not reflect Jesus's ways, his law, his character, his values, but our own. Do we look like our neighbors in the way that we pursue the kingdom of God? And then finally, it involves his power. The power of the Holy Spirit, where we live in dependence on God rather than in our own flesh. A good indication of this is whether or not we actually do what we talked about last week. Do we regularly take time to be alone with God and to pray and to be dependent on him and to say, not my will, but yours. May your kingdom come. Give me what I need today. Take all three of those together and you probably... um, get a good picture of whether or not you're rejecting partnership with God or you're partnering with him. So ask yourself, have you been refusing partnership with God? Look at your your parenting or your employment or your relationships or your life in our church and say, am I looking for where God is at work and seeking to join him in that? Or am I using Jesus for my own agenda or ignoring him altogether? Partnership with God is best for us, and it is best for others. And a lot of us are scared of partnership, right? And maybe that's because you've been hurt by a church or by other Christians. Maybe you feel like God has betrayed you in some way. But partnership with God is is for your good. It's it's how you flourish in God's world. There's that expression, um, I don't even know who said it first. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. Uh, And then there's that old song from like the 70s or 80s that we all sang in youth group when I was a kid. We all need somebody to lean on, right? Partnership is a good thing, right? And in our day and age, we we buck at binding ourselves to other people and commitments and even to God because that limits us and that's that's scary. We can be hurt or we might miss out on things. But if you think about partnership, you know that fundamentally it is good and you need it. I think about um, how Sally and I, we, we've always really enjoyed doing work projects together around our house. Um, some of the best times in our marriage, honestly, we, we have a project, a goal, and we're working on something. But sometimes, uh, maybe more than I care to admit, I kind of wish Sally wasn't there because she's slowing me down. You know, I just want to do this. And she's like, well, wait, aren't we supposed to do this first? And, I, you know, and she's hold on now, I think we got to do this. And I'm like, just let me do it. I just want to move faster. I just want to move forward, right? But the thing is, when I do that, almost always I've missed something that she knows I'm missing and I get down the road and then we have to back up and it takes 10 times longer, right? And and of course, there are always times when I can't, you know, I can't drill and hold at the same time and I need another set of hands and I can't think of all the ways to solve problems that we face, and she's got way better ideas. So the the reality is, as much as I want to just sometimes do it myself, because I think I can do it faster and better, I need a partner. And the thing is, we all need partners in life. You need friends and uh, maybe a spouse or family members 
or coworkers that you need to depend on. And ultimately, um, God has to be your partner. You have to be partnering with what he is doing. Because if you try to go about your life on your own, it's only going to bring death and disaster and harm to those around you. So we need to be restored to God's mission because we've gone our own way. And that just brings isolation, chaos, and death. So finally, the, the gospel, the good news of partnership. We are made to partner with God in creation and in his redemptive kingdom work. Now, I want to be very clear. There's one thing we just absolutely don't partner with him in, and that's being saved from our sins. <laughs> you have no part in that. I have no part in that. We are dead people, and dead people don't partner with God to make us alive again. God makes us alive as a, an act of grace. And Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves and cannot participate in at all. Salvation is a gift of God. So all the death that we've brought into the world, Jesus takes that on for us and on our behalf. That's what Jesus came to do. He was sent into the world to bring God's kingdom and to give it to us as a gift. He was caught up in God's net of judgment. And he went all the way into death to bring us life so that we could be restored to partnership with God, right? He came to those who were dwelling in the shadow of death, and he allowed himself to be overcome by utter darkness so that we could live in the light of God's presence as partners in his world to bring beauty around us. So be, let me be very clear about this. Discipleship begins with knowing God has done this on your behalf and embracing that gift, and that God doesn't need us, and he, and he didn't use us in any of that. But then because he rescues us, he invites us to partner with him. And he, he lets us join in this work of calling people to be reconciled to God, of healing people of their brokenness, of liberating them from their bondage. And he tells us, if you have faith in me, if you've received this gift, then you belong to me. You are not alone. You have a purpose in your life. That's good news. Your life is not your own. You don't get to decide what is right for your life. You are not your own. You have a purpose that is given by God. And you have something to offer to what God is doing in the world. I talk to people all the time who I feel like they don't have anything to add or offer to what our church is doing or what God is doing because it doesn't look like this person over here. Well, it doesn't matter if you're not like that person over here. Everybody has something to offer to what God is doing in the world. You have something to contribute, right? This is why Paul says we're like a body with different parts. And we need all the different body parts. And the ones that are typically um, parts that, that are sort of shameful, um, they have honor in God's kingdom, right? So you have a place in God's kingdom. You have a, a way to partner with him. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to think about how you can discern where God is at work around you. Discern where God is at work around you and join with him in that. This is why what I said last week is so important. You have to get alone with God and be still and quiet and study his word and pray because it's in those moments that you can begin to discern what God is doing around you in the people that you're around, in your home, in your work, in your neighborhood. You think about who God's put in your life and you say, where is God at work and where can I join him and what he is already doing? We've got to learn to recognize the kingdom of God. What does that look like? Where is the rule of God manifesting in the world around me? And how do I join him in that rule? How do we recognize softness and openness in other people? 
so that we can begin to bring the good news to them. So that's the second point here. Where do we partner with God? How do we do that? Well, it's the same three things the disciples did. We are heralds of the gospel. You can partner with God in being a herald of the gospel, in someone who speaks the good news of Jesus to people. And that means learning the good news so much in your own life, constantly hearing about the grace of God that you know how to recognize where people need it and speak the good news of Jesus to them. But secondly, you can be a healer. Who needs healing around me? Of course, we all need healing, but how do we participate in the healing of other people? And I mean that in a lot of ways, physically, socially, relationally, economically, there's, you know, psychologically, there's all sorts of ways that, that people need healing. How can I do a part in that work? It could be presence with people, friendship. It could be relieving them economically. It could be teaching them skills. It could be being a doctor or a nurse or physically helping them get better. It could be um, even naming sin in their life that helps them grow as a person so they can learn to have better relationships. There's all sorts of ways that we can participate in the healing of other people. And finally, a liberator. How do you help people experience freedom, right? Obviously working for justice in our community, but uh, on a smaller level, helping people overcome addiction. There's all sorts of ways that we can participate in God's liberating work in the world. And let me just say this in closing, partnership with God takes growth. You're not going to be able to do it perfectly tomorrow. You're not going to know everything you need to know tomorrow. That's part of discipleship. It's a journey. You're learning. You're in his school. You're growing. It's going to take time. And just like, you know, when you're letting your kid help you set the table or do your woodworking project, they're going to make mistakes. They don't have all the skills yet. Well, neither do you. Neither do I. That's okay. God delights in you partnering with him in what he is doing in the world. To be a disciple is to join Jesus in what he is doing. Discipleship is active. It involves taking on Jesus's mission. It means returning to the creational purposes that God made us with and joining God in his redemptive purposes. It's partnering with Jesus and doing the works that he is doing. And the good news is, as we go on that work, he nourishes us. And that's why we're going to go to this table together. Because uh, we need to be fed here. We need to be reminded of the gift that comes to us, that we had no part in, that Christ gave his body so that we would have life. He shed his blood to cleanse us. That's his gift. And now he nourishes us with that so that we can go and commune with him as we go on the mission that he's given us. So let's pray together. Father, uh, it is a joy that you would involve us in what you're doing in the world. And we acknowledge that we don't always see that. We don't even uh, join you, even though it's a great privilege. And we repent of that. We acknowledge we've turned to go our own way. And so often we live our lives with our own agenda. We pray that your spirit would make us into people who join you in what you're doing and what you have done in the person of your son. We thank you that you've forgiven us for all the ways that we bring death and isolation into the world. And that you would still use us in your kingdom. So uh, by your spirit, empower us. Help us to have eyes to see what you're doing around us and to join you there. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.